When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. This content may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. Thanks to Territory Foods for supporting Disturbed. Territory is a chef-driven marketplace of sustainably sourced, nutritionally dense, ready-to-eat meals. To save $75 across your first three orders and get free shipping, go to TerritoryFoods.com and use promo code DISTURBED. This episode features an immersive audio experience. We recommend listening with headphones. Welcome in to a very special bonus Halloween edition of Disturbed. And yes, this episode is going to be a little bit different, as we feature the fictional writing of three different authors to bring you right into Halloween. But the terror will be just as real. So sit back and listen close as we dive into the horror We open the show featuring the writing of Reddit author N.S. Lewis, with performances by Matt Bradford, Tanya Eby, and Tom Aglio, as we attempt to take a peek beneath the veil. My wife has a removable face. I've never glimpsed what lies beneath it, but my best friend has. You see, Samantha told me about it on our third date. We were watching a movie on her couch when I made my move to kiss her. She whipped her hand in front of my face and blocked me. There's something you need to know. I braced myself. Here it comes. The I'm not ready for a relationship, nothing to do with you, of course. It was the absolute last thing that I wanted to hear because I was already crazy about her. I have a removable face. That's a new one. I was about to laugh but she was wearing a deadly serious expression. Is that like a metaphor or something? No. My face is literally removable. Look, closely. She lifted her chin and traced her jawline with a finger. You can see the seam. After admiring how beautiful her neck was for a dizzying moment, I leaned in for an inspection. It was very hard to see but it did look like there was a slightly unnatural transition from her face to her throat. I grew dizzier as a dozen questions rushed into my brain. Don't bother asking why or how or anything like that. I can't tell you that. If that's going to be a problem, you should leave now. I'm letting you know this because I like you, and I want to take the next step, but this is non-negotiable. Okay, I said, unsure of what was happening. Not a problem. So what? You have a removable face. Who cares? It it looks good. There's something else. Once a day, usually in the evening, I have to remove the face and disinfect the inside of it. If I don't, it will rot. This takes about an hour, give or take, depending on how my day went. During this time, you must never, ever look at my real face. Never. Do you understand? Yeah, got it. Don't ask about it. Don't don't look at your uh, real face. Samantha stood up. Now, 
I'm going to go into the bathroom and clean my face. That will give you plenty of time to think about what I've told you. If you're here when I'm done, that's great. I would like that. But if you're gone, I'll understand. She turned and walked into her bedroom. I sat in stunned silence as I heard the bathroom door close. I gave the thing some serious thought. It was possible that it was a joke of some kind. It was possible that it was a delusion. Was it possible that it was true? Well, it was certainly possible to transform an actor's face with movie makeup, so I supposed it was possible that Samantha wore a removable face every day. Maybe she had a horrible accident where her flesh had been mangled, or maybe her face had been melted by acid or burned by a fire, or, or the skin shorn off by heavy machinery. I mean, if it had, I would never know, because she would never tell me, and I would never see it. I pictured a face of raw, naked muscle rotting away. I'd kiss her if that was what I was kissing. But wasn't that what we all were under the skin? Just muscle and bone and blood and squishy organs. I paced around the room, running my hand through my hair. I liked Samantha a lot. I mean, she was smart and funny and, and beautiful. But was that beauty real? Did it count? Did it matter if it was real or not? Was I being superficial even worrying about it? When she came out of the bathroom, I was still there. I looked at her face. She smiled. And I was in love. We dated and we moved in together. We decided to get married. And for the most part, it was a completely normal relationship. Typical of two young people in love, building a life together. And during the day, it was easy to forget about the face altogether. It looked natural enough. And only in certain positions or in certain lights was there ever any indication that it wasn't natural. But every night was the same. Samantha would close herself in the bathroom, sometimes for an hour, sometimes for two, and clean the inside of her face. The curiosity never left me. I would sit there and wonder what was under that face. I came so close to barging in on her a few times, but I never did. I did occasionally ask her about it. About what, if anything, had happened. About how it was possible to make the removable face look so real. About what it really looked like underneath. I tried to coax her into showing me. Assuring her that I, I loved her no matter what and I didn't give a damn what her real face looked like. I was just curious, that's all. She never showed me or told me the story behind it. She didn't get upset at me unless I was really badgering her. She'd just shrug and say, You know you can't see it. You know I can't tell you about it. I never told anybody about Samantha's removable face. And it's not that she asked me not to. I just didn't think it was anybody's business. Except once, I did tell somebody. It was during my bachelor party. We had rented several cabins in Big Sur and spent the night drinking and packing our noses with powders that we shouldn't have been packing our noses with. Everyone else had passed out and the sun was creeping up behind us as I stood on the majestic cliffs with my friend Chris, looking down on the Pacific waves crashing against the rocks. Chris was my best friend, as close to a brother as I'd known. We'd grown up together and visited each other at college often and spent the summers together. After college, we'd moved to different cities, but we stayed in close contact. Standing there on the cliffs, I told Chris about Samantha's removable face. 
At first, he thought I was joking, and he had a thousand questions, most of which I couldn't answer. What's underneath? I don't know, man. I don't know. Doesn't that drive you crazy, not knowing? I shrugged. You know, there's lots of stuff I don't know. I don't know how to do calculus. I don't know what happens when we die. But dude, she's about to be your wife, and you don't even know what she looks like. I mean, I'd have to take a look. Like, you could set up a camera in the bathroom. That's where she does it, right? Set up a camera and have a look. Then you'll know. My side. Yeah, it drives me crazy. I've asked her a million times, but she told me I could never look. I gotta respect that, man, even if I don't like it. That's love. Chris laughed. You telling me to respect a woman. <laughs> Up is down now. Then we fell back into talking about old times as a new day dawned. Chris was in town for business last week and planned on spending the weekend at our house. The conversation at Big Sur had happened four years ago, and we hadn't spoken about Samantha's removable face since, despite keeping in close contact and seeing each other as often as two people transforming into adults in different parts of the country can. It happened on Saturday evening. We were lounging lazily in the backyard, deep into the beer, having just finished with some grilled steaks, when I got a text from work. Eh, God damn it, I groaned. I have to make a work call. Seriously? On a Saturday night? My biggest client, babe. Sorry. It is what it is, I guess. I'm going to head inside and get cleaned up. Chris, are you okay just hanging out for a bit? Chris smiled. I'll be fine. Got my beer, got some weeds to pull in your garden. Ah, God knows your lazy-ass husband isn't going to do it. Those tomatoes are choking to death. It's a tragedy. I rolled my eyes and went into the side yard to make my call. Fifteen minutes into it, I heard the screams coming from inside. Both my best friend and my wife were wailing in terror. I dropped the phone and ran into the house and down the hall to our bedroom. Through the open door, I could see that the door to the master bathroom was also standing open. Don't come in. I don't have my face on. Call an ambulance. He looked. Oh, God. He looked. She sounded desperate and truly horrified. And that made me desperate and horrified. And I wanted to rush into the bathroom. I knew suddenly that Samantha didn't want me to look at her real face, not out of a sense of vanity, but for my own safety. Chris staggered backwards out of the bathroom. He was holding a straightened out paper clip, which he had used to pick the privacy lock. But now he was stabbing it again and again into his eyes, shouting gibberish. He was clearly in the depths of madness, and it turned my stomach to see him mutilate himself. Call a fucking ambulance! Don't come in here! He fucking looked! I turned and ran back to the side yard, where my phone was lying in the newly mowed grass. My client was still on the line, alarmed, asking what was happening, what all the screaming was. I hung up on him and called 911. When the paramedics arrived, Chris was having a seizure in the hallway. Samantha was stroking his head, sobbing. Her face was on, but it had been done hastily, and everything looked a little off. My world has been dark this past week. My best friend is in a psychiatric hospital under suicide watch. He's completely blind and mostly catatonic, except when he slips into a violent, babbling mania. The doctors are optimistic that his state is temporary. They don't know the truth about what caused it, because I told the paramedics that Chris had taken a large dose of psychedelic mushrooms and fallen into psychosis. 
I saw no good reason to tell the truth about what had happened. Who would believe that one look at my wife's real face would make somebody insane? At best, we would be the subjects of a long investigation, and at worst, we would have to prove what we were saying was true by showing somebody Samantha's face. Then the same thing would happen again. And what about after that? I had no idea, and no interest in finding out. And for Samantha's part, I knew that she would never consent to show anybody her real face, no matter what the consequences of refusal were. I did get a follow-up call from the police asking me to confirm my story. The hospital found no traces of psilocybin in Chris's blood, though that's not unheard of since it has a short half-life, and if they end up testing his hair, I will likely be in a lot of trouble. That's truly the least of my concerns. Samantha is in a state of her own. She still cleans the inside of her face, though not as regularly, and when she puts it back on, it's always crooked now. It's beginning to smell a little bit. I've tried to assure her that it wasn't her fault. He knew. I told him that nobody was ever allowed to look at it. He knew, and then he broke into the bathroom. This is not on you, babe. Please, talk to me. Not on me? That one look at my fucking face makes people insane? Please, I just need some time alone. And as for me, well, I'm doing my best to hold it together. Do you know what's strange, though? Despite what happened to Chris, I still find myself curious about what my wife's real face looks like. More curious than ever, really. yes, the old removable face that can kill with one look. We hope Samantha is out there doing well. But not everyone is doing so well. In our next story, featuring the writing of Reddit author The Horror Writer 2, and performances by Nicole Doolin and John Patnode, we discover that life isn't so easy when your husband is a serial killer. I loved Michael, even if he was a serial killer. He went missing one day before the police finally caught on. I had no idea. I was stunned, not to mention betrayed, depressed, absolutely horrified by my husband's crimes. But what could I do? Michael and I were close, but apparently not close enough for him to draw me into his many murders. His torturous, systematic slaughter of over twenty women. Nor show me the way he photographed each and every one of them, both before and after sending them to their gruesome deaths. Michael, always the sadistic shutterbug. I felt for his victims and their families. I really did. I cried every night for eleven months straight. Long ago, I came to the conclusion I was oblivious to living with a monster. And I fucking dealt with it. I wasn't defending shit, and certainly not Michael. Maybe the same psychopath who was able to lure countless women to their deaths could dupe his devoted wife? Who knew? And why was that so hard to believe? Especially with a man as sweet and handsome as him. But like buzzards, the media tore into my fragile flesh. 
I was the dumb housewife to what they dubbed the perfect husband. Just the dumb blonde. Never mind, I had a PhD and worked at St. Francis Hospital here in Columbus, Georgia. Goddamn social media was even worse. The abusive comments swarmed me. Everything from I was a dumb bitch to apparently an ugly old hag at 44. Apparently, I was so jealous of other women and all my failed pregnancies, I let Michael do the dirty work. Let him exterminate those beautiful, fertile women. Yeah, this was the narrative. As suspicious as they were, the police and DA still cleared me, but not before a final press conference where the prosecutor played the not-enough-evidence card. Just teasing the press enough for his own 15 minutes of fame. To be able to be featured in the surefire documentaries where Lifetime and E would rip me apart. How could she not know when the murders happened under their roof? In their own basement. The tabloids tormented me. More than the memories, to be honest. But I had no idea. Michael wasn't that way around me. I thought he was my soulmate. The love of my life. We'd met in college over 20 years ago. Both of us honor grads. At first, we bonded over photography, nature, the arts, the very hobby that would become Michael's terrifying trademark. Michael wasn't tall, but stayed in good shape. He ran every day, and I certainly wasn't complaining when he kept his morning run ritual over the years. Like I said, he was handsome. His chiseled face complete with irresistible dimples. His brown, curly hair as soft as those green eyes. When we first moved to our big house on Whitesfield Road, I thought this was it. Our life was set. Michael and Sam Downing now had the American dream. Of course, being with someone so attractive and charming only intensified my own insecurities. Even more so once I became a suspect. A media punching bag. Only unlike O.J. and Casey Anthony, I didn't have a trial to lean on. Didn't have anything to leak out to the public. I was never given a voice. Or chance. At least the hospital stood by me. Columbus, Georgia, like a support group away, compared to the skeptical outside world. I guess we took care of our own out here. Regardless of whether or not my friends and family thought I helped the perfect husband kill those girls... Most of the time, I kept to myself. No more traveling or exploring. Instead, I just stayed inside our big brick house. Two stories of soulless superficiality. Michael's gorgeous grin still stared at me from our many photographs. His spirit stuck in every cat ornament or surreal portrait he ever bought for me. I felt him everywhere. Except the basement. I damn sure never went back there. I didn't care how much the police had collected evidence and washed out the grisly scene. I couldn't dare face the Downing Slaughterhouse once more. Couldn't face the horrifying reality. What was worse was there was no closure. The cops took what they could, and that was that. But Michael was still gone. He'd taken his Nikon D5 camera with him. So now we'd never know how many women he killed. How many corpses he'd have on display for his personal art exhibit. And I thought we probably never would. Michael was too smart. Too clever. 
beneath the harassment online and from the paparazzi, I wilted away for another agonizing year. My blonde hair now started to gray. Bags started popping up under my eyes. Like a virus, a deadly combination of stress and midlife crisis crashed upon my once good looks. I was far from curvy, but I only grew skinnier. To my horror, even my tits started to sag. At this point, I had no chance at dating. At least, I didn't think so. No longer did I feel attractive or talented, much less confident. When I felt at my lowest, loneliest, and yes, horniest, I sought attention online, all under an anonymous name. But the only compliments this desperate girl got were from the more desperate guys. Not to mention the hybristophilia-addled men and women wanting me just for my undeserved infamy. I didn't talk to hardly anyone at all. Sure, the Columbus community didn't harass or insult me. Not like the national media did, or national zeitgeist for that matter. But no one was exactly eager to swing by my house. No one invited me over. Forget margarita nights with the co-workers. My own family didn't even have me over for Christmas. Instead, there was only one person I interacted with on a daily basis. My neighbor, Sean Winslow. Near an 80, or at least looking it, Sean was polite and respectful. The grandfather type who never married or had kids. Like me, he was all alone. And by sheer coincidence, all the other homes on Martsville Road barricaded themselves from their neighbors with fancy iron pike fences and gates, quarantining themselves from Sean and I. Not that their isolation helped while Michael was on the prowl, especially considering how Michael kidnapped and killed Tara Falls, one of the wealthier people out here. A mutilation by machete. Sean welcomed me back with open arms, his skin was still so smooth, his stark white hair so straight, his body muscular, his movements spry, as if we'd swapped aging patterns. Sean seemed to grow younger and more spirited, while I grew decrepit both inside and out. To my relief, Sean believed me because he too had been duped, felt betrayed by the love of my life. Every weekend, Michael and I used to visit Sean, so he too had been close to this living monster. Days after the shitstorm ensued, Sean had let me stay the night at his place. Sure, maybe he was just being an old perv. This was before the stress tarnished whatever good looks I had, after all. But Sean didn't make any moves. He never did. Instead, he comforted me. There at his kitchen table, the two of us shared one of his older cabernets, the wine warmed me from the dread, and so did Sean's pleasant company. I looked out a window, out toward the blue lights, the news vans, the media assault on 6660 Whitesville Road, an investigation still ongoing to this day. Sympathetic, Sean grabbed my hand, the supportive hold of a parent rather than a lover's lust. It's okay, Sam. You couldn't have known. I looked into his piercing hazel eyes. No longer did I cry. Not now. Not when I knew I wasn't alone. No one could. But then came a miserable milestone. 
The first of what I was sure would be a never-ending cycle of pain. One that wouldn't stop until my death. The one-year anniversary of our lives being buried. The January day Michael's darkest secrets were discovered. By me, the community, and the world. And the day Michael slaughtered my personal life. His first kill without a blade. Of course, the networks were chomping at the bit. Just passing 12 months meant more coverage, more specials. Televised investigations handled by incompetent talking heads and clickbait reporters. There would be exploitative reenactments of Michael's methodical crimes. Theories on where he is now. And theories on how I got away with murder. I had nothing new to say. I didn't know why Michael did what he did. Why he killed? Why he used all sorts of vicious weapons from knives to hammers to kill so many women? Or why he used his favorite weapon of all, the Nikon? The same exact camera he used to take pictures of his bloody trophies. At the recommendation of lawyers and loved ones, I declined the biased interviews, even when I knew that wouldn't be enough to turn down the army of press camping outside my door when the 21st arrived. But Sean came to the rescue, yet again. The offer of staying at his place during this tasteless holiday was too much for me to pass up. An escape from both the limelight and lynch mobs, and one that was less than a hundred yards away. On that cold January dawn, I migrated inside his house, well before the news crews and cameras began their stakeout before I could become prey to this malicious pop culture. Sean's house was spacious, clean. Besides the abundance of wine, he liked art as well. The many framed photographs and paintings perfect for his homemade museum. Throughout the day, we hid inside, far from the madding media. No one bothered us. Sean's security cameras scaring away even the creepy Michael Downing fan club. But like a ghost... Michael still haunted me. The TV talked about him constantly. So many stations stayed dedicated to anniversary coverage. To discuss Michael. Or to accuse me. So Sean guided me back toward the kitchen table. Back to the side of our better memories. Together, we shared a few bottles of Pinot Grigio. Well, I'm glad I stole you away from them. <laughs> Grinning, I took another sip. You and me both. Behind a warm smile, Sean poured more into my glass. A generous helping, as always. I just got this bottle yesterday. They got that vineyard out in Albany, you know. Oh, really? That's cool. Sean leaned back, his muscles well on display through the jeans and flannel shirt. The killer biceps. I just wanted to mark this special occasion, I suppose. Even I cracked a smile. Great idea. Well, I knew you'd be here. <laughs> he leaned in closer. I always appreciate your company, Sam. My eyes scanned the room, doing everything they could to avoid the sickening soap opera outside my front yard. But the huge Keurig, the catalog of Sean's nature photography, did nothing to ease the anxiety. Nothing to stifle Michael's deep voice, his piercing gaze, the elegy of our good memories. Honestly, it gets lonely out here. 
feeling drunker by the second, I leaned against the table, trying to keep myself upright. Sean shook his glass. White wine splashed out. I now realized it was a glass he hadn't touched in quite some time. Unusual, considering both of us were alcoholics. I miss the old days, Sam. The drinks caught up to me. They hit so quick. So sudden. I looked over at Sean's refrigerator. At the many magnets and photos. Several pics looked familiar. There was St. Simon's Island's beautiful beaches. Pasacoyan psychedelia in Buena Vista. The same place as Michael and I loved to visit. I miss when we could all be together. Before those amazing murders. The kills. My eyes drifted out of conscious. The room got blurry. Everything faded to black. The glass slipped through my hand and smashed against the marble tile. A deafening sound now reduced to a hollow echo. Through the haze, I confronted the bottle. What I was sure was drugged Albany Pinot Grigio. Sean reached toward me. I want all of us together, Sam. That was the last thing I heard. I fell backward in my seat, entered an unconscious realm. What felt like centuries was mere hours. I awoke later that night, confused, disoriented. I knew I'd been drugged. Lying on the ground, I looked all around me. Bright bulbs lit the claustrophobic room with clinical lab precision. Immediately, terror sunk in. Surrounding me were hundreds of photos. Enclosed in the gaudy frames were bodies and bodies. All of them women. Some nude. Some in torn clothes. But all the girls were bound and gagged in duct tape. All of them dead. There were dissections. Bludgeonings. Decapitations. Visceral, grisly murder at the hands of many different tools. And at the hands of one horrifying serial killer. My husband. Like Michael, the Nikon D5 showed no mercy. Every corpse was captured in a captivating light. In all their disturbing glory. From the walls... The collection of corpses watched me. The few faces that weren't mangled still had their eyes open in fear. The faces of death. Right by the red door was a long metal table, its surface covered by an arsenal of vicious weapons. There were knives, machetes, axes, and gallons of dark, dry blood the blades ready to tear through flesh, and all they needed was a killer's hungry touch. I now knew where I was. The houses in this neighborhood all had similar layouts, but there was no way this was my basement, even if it looked just like the scary scene police had shown me one year ago. Somehow, Sean had made a shrine to Michael's work, a terrifying tribute to his prolific serial killer career. Then a muffled cry hit me, as did a nauseating smell. Turning, I saw a red-headed woman lying a few feet away. She was bound and gagged in duct tape, her ripped clothes covered in blood, her pale body covered in bruises. She couldn't have been older than 18, but she still fit Michael's M.O. 
or whatever the hell Sean's type was. The woman's eyes begged me for help. She squirmed beneath the tape, too weak to even crawl. Oh, God! I jumped up and ran toward her, desperate to help the young woman escape. Tears streamed down her eyes. Shivering, the woman struggled to move closer toward me. This up close, I saw she was missing patches of skin, her pants stained with days of piss and shit. I reached out toward her. Then the red door burst open. In came Sean, a sly smile on his handsome face, a silver hammer in his hand, a Nikon D5 in the other. Startled, I jumped back. My eyes watched Sean charging forward like a wolf ready to pounce on a vulnerable lamb. I stood petrified in fear, even as I heard the young woman shriek through that tape, heard her body flounder on the floor. Without hesitation, Sean sunk the hammer cloth straight into her face, right between the woman's screaming eyes. Blood blasted all over us, each of us coated in a quick crimson shower. The girl fell straight back, her body silent and still the hammer and arrow into her forehead's bullseye. A fast flash caught the post-mortem photo. The young woman, now a most morbid model, perfect for Sean's morbid museum. Sean lowered the Nikon, revealing an even bigger smile, pleased at his latest trophy. Horrified, I glared at him. What the hell are you doing? Sean's cackle became a soundtrack to this slaughterhouse in his death basement. Angry, I took a step toward him. What the fuck's wrong with you? I waved toward his latest victim. Did y'all do this together? Both of y'all sick fucks. Not at all. Crying out, I lunged toward him, toward the old sack of shit. In one quick push, Sean pushed me straight down. His strength so sneaky. I fell hard. Groaning, I looked up at him. His muscular physique. The shoulders and chiseled chest so unnatural for someone near 80. With a theatrical flourish, Sean withdrew a switchblade and flicked out the shiny blade. He set his hungry sights on me. I've been waiting a long time for this, Sam. Disturbed. I watched him lean in toward me, but inside I built up courage, or at least tried to. You have no idea. He put the blade to my face. Faint blood stains were all over the fucking thing. Bits of female flesh included. I suppressed the tears, but stayed sickened by everything around me. I want you. Embracing anger, I threw a first punch right at Sean's nose, my aim perfect. Covering his face, Sean staggered back. Ah, fuck! Then I looked on, simultaneously stunned and scared, unable to move, to make a sound. There stood Sean clutching his bloodied nose and dangling filleted flesh. The long strands of skin like shredded paper. He glared at me behind one green eye, and one brown one. Through the blood, pale powder smeared across his hands. Red rain had washed away the disguise, and now it was all clear. 
especially when I saw that hazel contact line by Michael's latest victim. Raising the switchblade, my husband confronted me. Standing tall in the death room he'd recreated in Sean's basement. A sadistic smirk now plastered on his face. Looks like we're together again, Sam. Right where I always wanted you. I staggered to my feet. Too nervous to stop the chills, but too upset to shed tears. Why, Michael? With cool indifference, Michael ripped off the remaining latex. The makeup now wiped clean to reveal the face of a cold-blooded killer. Fake skin still dripped off Michael's fingertips. But his grip on that blade stayed steady. On the camera as well. Why are you doing this? I hurled at him. Michael took a calm step toward me. I had to escape, babe. Both his hands now grabbed onto the Nikon as he got closer and closer. So, I did the only thing I could. I came here. This Michael was similar, sure. Still handsome and charismatic. Still the man I married. But deep down, I felt dread. Disgust at the Michael Downing who fooled me. The perfect husband I didn't know. Betrayal battered my senses, but I wasn't gonna cry. Not over him. Not ever again. Just inches away, Michael pointed the camera at me. A crude spotlight for my fear. I killed Sean. It was tough, but I had no choice. You know I'm not crazy about killing dudes, Sam. I just glared at him. Watched Michael as he got ready to take a photo. Happy anniversary, babe. There, right in front of me, he took the picture. With no regard for Sam. For all the years I loved him. Instead, I was just another temporary thrill. Yet another victim. Grin and Michael lowered the camera. Oh, I'll take my time with you, Sam. I stood there silent and still. I felt violated. Sickened. Hurt. Cringing, I let Michael caress my face for one final time. Just like I always wanted to. Relishing the torture, he leaned in close, his movements soft and slow. Now how about a kiss for the perfect husband, babe? I then made my move. A quick punch into Michael's firm chest. My long year of agony now released in that one act of violence... Groan and Michael fell to his knee. He dropped the knife. My onslaught continued. I just laid into him. One hit after the other. Now I was glad to have kept the wedding ring on. More force for that left-handed hook. Michael's muscular frame hit the ground, lying parallel to his last victim. Two bodies for this basement funeral. A funeral for my ruined past. For my shattered dreams. Crying out, Michael struggled on the ground, his face battered and bruised, blood pouring from his broken nose. Power surged through me, strength, confidence. All the violence sent me into a pure state of euphoria, the most pleasure I've felt since the honeymoon stage. Excited, I snatched up the Nikon from Michael's weakened grasp, aimed it at him as if the camera were a pistol. A smile long gone, Michael glowered at me. Ah, you bitch! You fucking bitch! Give me that! 
Defiant for the first time in this horror movie marriage, I held the camera steady, the lens more unflinching than my harsh gaze. Gimme the fucking camera! Rage won out, as did desire. I snapped my first death portrait. But did you really think I'd turn Michael in? Expose his existence for all the world to see? Clear my name for those fucking assholes? Of course not. Sure, I ended up dumping Carla Dowes's body off on Whittlesey Boulevard. A chance for her family to get the closure I finally got. But I did nothing with Sean's place. Nothing other than take a few souvenirs with me. Months later, and the kills still keep me aroused. Keep me excited. I think about those tied-up bodies. The naked young men helpless to my touch. Their blood. The slow slaughters. The way the boys flinch when I take that fun first photo. And then how I position their beautiful corpses for the even more fun final shoot. Photography hasn't been this exhilarating since college. I'll tell you that. I renovated my basement. Now it's my death room rather than Michael's. Sure, I got a similar layout. A pink wooden table full of vicious sharp blades at my disposal. But at least I keep the slaughterhouse stylized. I love the pink wallpaper. The psychedelic, now blood-stained, rugs. But most of all, it's my personal museum. The framed photos of dead hot guys running up and down those walls are my victims. Not to mention my newfound pride and joy. The fetish I never knew I had. <laughs> Late at night, I'll fall asleep thinking about the kills. Fantasize over them. Salivate over taking those pictures. Dream about murdering those fine-ass men. Mm. <laughs> By now, the photos of Michael and I are gone. Everything that reminded me of him are gone with them. The cat figurines, the surreal portraits. This is my house now. Especially that goddamn basement. Sam Slaughterhouse. The only thing Michael has left me is himself the crumpled prisoner in my death room. Like an entrapped lab rat, he just lies there in duct tape, too beaten and bloody to do anything. Both his Achilles are sliced, his tongue ripped out, fingers lopped off. I don't mind toying with him from time to time, but I do have other studs to tend to, more alluring hotties to play with. Their photos now form my basement trophy case. That Nikon, my deadliest weapon of all. I understand Michael's desire now. I get why he was a serial killer. The same motive fuels my bloodlust in the basement and in bed. What I do behind that big red door gives me exhilaration. An escape from the boredom. So much pleasure. I carry it with me to the bedroom every single night. Now I never feel lonely. After so many murders, I feel better. The carnage, a catharsis for my confidence. I've matched Michael's strength. Now muscular and fit, I look amazing. The blonde hair is back. The wrinkles held at bay. 
I look ten years younger, and I use my attractive looks to my advantage, just like Michael did. In the basement, I scan the many framed photos, the many victims I'll be thinking of later tonight, and the same murders I'll be dreaming over for eternity. I steal a look at my unconscious husband, divorced closer than ever considering Michael's dying state. His cuts and scars have only been growing deeper these past few days. Then my eyes drift toward Adam, the college kid I picked up last week. A jock with a nice smile and long black hair. The slit throat now made him even prettier. So did the blood all over that amazing body. A perfect picture from my gallery. A sharp vibration cut through my admiration. A phone call from my latest date, Johnny Cullen. He was a cute, skinny black guy in his 30s. One with a sympathetic heart I couldn't wait to carve out. Dressed to kill, I turned toward the table. Toward the butcher knife I planned on using later. Not to mention the other tools forming my hardware horror fantasies. The media always wanted me to be a killer. And so did the rest of the world. Even Columbus, Georgia. Even my friends and my family. And now? Well, I was gonna give them that bitch. Meet Sam Downing, photographer and serial killer, the perfect wife. <laughs> Thanks to our newest sponsor, Territory Foods, for supporting Disturbed. Territory is a chef-driven marketplace of meals that are sustainably sourced, nutritionally dense, and ready to eat in just 90 seconds. And here's what I love. They use only healthy fats, clean proteins, and tons of sustainably harvested seasonal produce. Now the entire menu is free of gluten, inflammatory oils, dairy, and refined sugar. That sounds pretty great, doesn't it? You'll find 10 different plans to choose from, including the Mediterranean diet, paleo, vegan, whole 30, and keto friendly. Or you can bypass the diet and just choose what you like best. But what are you actually going to get? How about menus featuring as many as 90 items per week? And they even adapt to the seasons and latest food trends. So there's always something brand new to try. Now the meals are delivered twice a week, so you know they're always fresh. And if you're anything like me, you don't want to be locked into a commitment. And with Territory, that's not a problem, because you can pause or cancel your meals at any time. And as for me, I just put my first order in, and let me tell you, I cannot wait to get these meals and get started. So to save $75 across your first three orders, plus free shipping, go to TerritoryFoods.com and use promo code DISTURBED. That's $75 you can save across your first three orders, along with free shipping, by going to TerritoryFoods.com with the promo code DISTURBED. And as always, supporting our sponsors helps support the podcast. One thing I'm constantly doing is looking for the next great podcast to listen to. I know I'm always looking through the different charts and trending podcasts to find a new show I think I might like. And I want to share one with you that I'm confident you're going to love. It's called What Was That Like with Scott Johnson. 
Now this podcast honestly is one of my go-to listens. Each episode features a new guest telling a first-hand account of an incredible experience. And the topics covered are such a great variety. Some of it's true crime, like someone who experienced a mass shooting or home invasion. Others are a bit more lighthearted, like the man who discussed winning over $100,000 on Wheel of Fortune. Now, Scott really takes a great approach to the show. He kind of sits back and just lets the guest go, which is really what you want in a show like this. Not a lot of interruptions. And one of the things you'll notice right away when you're scrolling through the feed is the eye-catching episode titles, like Dan was mauled by a grizzly bear, or Dana survived a plane crash. You know exactly what you're in for. An episode I listened to not long ago was titled, Robert was in a gunfight with pirates. And it's really an incredible story about a man who was on a large ship off the coast of Somalia when pirates attacked his ship. But what the pirates didn't know was that the ship Robert was on was a US Navy warship. And what happened next is a story only Robert can tell. Scott does a great job with the show and I highly recommend checking it out. You can find What Was That Like in your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts or at the website whatwasthatlike.com. We love a good story with a nice Shyamalan twist in it. Last I heard, Sam's still out there, getting all the dates she desires. I wonder how well she sleeps at night. I do know one person who hasn't been sleeping quite so well, Lexi in our next story. And that's because she sometimes gets a visitor. Author Chris Hicks brings us one of my all-time favorites. And with performances by Melissa Medina, Todd Barsness, Tom Aglio, Sarah Thomas, and Kelsey Scholes, it's no wonder we feel the realness of the sleep paralysis demon. My first memory of sleep paralysis happened when I was 10 years old. I remember because it was the night my parents took me to see Shrek 2 for getting good marks on my report card. It was an evening show, so we got in late, and my mom tucked me straight into bed when we got home. It was around 4 a.m. when I woke up. The light from my alarm clock told me that much. I couldn't feel anything, not my pajamas against my skin or the warmth of my head against the pillow. I could feel my arms and legs, but they felt heavy, as if a great weight was holding them down. I tried to call out, but I couldn't. My voice caught in my throat, my lips unable to move. I mustered a weak groan that sounded like a cross between a frog's croak and a zombie's moan. But that was it. I thought I was dead, that this is what death feels like being awake but unable to move or tell anyone. My mind wrestled with the idea of being placed in a coffin, unable to tell anyone I was still alive in here, unable to move or say anything as the lid closed and they put me in the ground, still alive. My fear subsided as I felt my heart thudding in my chest in response to my near panic attack. I also became aware of my breathing, which slowed as the fear subsided. I calmed a little, thinking it was just a dream. That was when I saw him for the first time. Mr. Brownstick Legs. He huddled in the corner of the room by my closet. His two oversized red eyes glowed in the dark of my bedroom. His face was like a porcelain mask, white, expressionless, with no mouth or nose. Only those two haunting red eyes. 
When he stood up, his body unfolded like origami until his head reached the ceiling. His neck bent, tilting forward as his true height was greater than the height of my room. His long black torso was covered in shimmering symbols that reflected red in the light of his glowing eyes. He stood on two spindly thin legs that disappeared into the shadows of the room. He made no noise as he moved, seeming to glide as he hovered closer to my bed. His long, thin arms reached down to me as I moaned through paralyzed lips. I could not scream, even though I very much wanted to. His fingers reaching through the darkness down to my face. Two pointed fingers touched against my eyelids, pushing them closed. I remember his fingertips feeling cool, but not cold. Even though the ends of his fingertips looked sharp, his touch was gentle. Do not struggle, little one. Sleep. Sleep. His voice was so deep, I could feel it in my chest when he spoke. I did as instructed, convincing myself that it indeed was a dream. Even if it wasn't, the back of my eyelids was more reassuring than looking into those piercing red eyes in his vacant mask of a face. I closed my eyes, wanting it to be a dream, willing it to be a dream. I woke up the next morning, thankfully able to move, walk, and talk. I explained what I saw to my parents, who both agreed that it was a dream. My mom tried floating the idea that something from Shrek 2 scared me, but neither my dad or I bought it. For confirmation, Dad asked that I draw a picture of what I saw for them. As I was drawing, I ran out of black crayon and had to finish his legs with the next darkest color in my crayon box. Hey there, Mr. Brown Stick Legs. My dad said as I handed him the drawing. You leave my daughter alone now, you hear? This is how my sleep paralysis demon ended up with the name Mr. Brown Stick Legs. Giving him a silly name helped take some of the edge off going to bed the following night. My dad even did a sweep of the room, calling out for him. Here, Mr. Brownstick Legs. Whistling as if he were calling a dog. It made me giggle, and the whole episode felt more fun than scary. But once they tucked me in and turned off the light, I felt the dread creeping back in. Darkness hits harder when you expect to find something lurking in the shadows. I don't know how long I searched, but... I eventually fell asleep. In the weeks following, I searched for Mr. Brownstick Legs every night as I fell asleep. Even when I went to sleepovers, I would do a cursory check in case he tagged along to a friend's house. As time passed, my searches became less frequent. It was a couple of months later, the night before my first day of fifth grade, when I woke up to Mr. Brownstick Legs straddled over my bed his empty plate of a face inches from my own. A scream stuck in my throat, coming out sounding like a gush of air releasing from a pool float. Hush, child. His voice was deep, echoless. I didn't know how he spoke without a mouth, but I heard him nonetheless. I saw that he held a piece of paper in his thin fingers, crumpled on the edges and torn. He held it up to show me. 
On the page was a pink blob with blue dots for eyes and a droll red smile and stick lines for legs and arms. It was lying on a blue rectangle. I found the picture you drew of me, so I drew a picture of you. Do you like it? I tried nodding, but I couldn't move. I tried answering, but all that came out was the same dry, croaking sound. Will you draw another one for me? I so liked the first one. You gave me pants. I look good in pants. Again, I was unable to respond or move to give him an answer. He must have been able to read my intent because he tucked the picture under my pillow before closing my eyes again. When I woke up in the morning, I bolted upright and tossed my pillow off the bed. My heart leapt into my throat when I found the picture. It wasn't a dream. He was real. I went to my desk and began drawing a picture for him, starting with his face and eyes, trying to capture as much detail as I could remember. I had forgotten all about the first day of school until my mom opened my door and found me still in my pajamas. Lexi! She yelled, startling me as I was coloring in his eyes. Your bus will be here in less than an hour. Get dressed now! I tucked my picture into my school backpack and got dressed. I finished my drawing at recess that day using my brand new Crayola 64 pack that I got with my back-to-school supplies. I gave him blue pants this time, figuring he'd like to see himself in jeans. I wrote his name, Mr. Brownstick Legs, at the bottom of the picture and drew a smiley face next to it, hoping he'd like his nickname. I flipped the paper over to write him a message on the back. I wanted to ask him questions, but didn't want to anger him since he visited me when I was at my most vulnerable. I wrote out my letter on a separate piece of paper before copying it over to the back of my picture. Dear Mr. Brownstick Legs, that's your name. My name is Lexi. I am in the fifth grade. What is your name? How old are you? Do you go to school? Why do you visit my bedroom? Why can't I move when you visit? You look scary, but you also seem nice. I hope we can be friends. Love, Lexi. P.S. I hope you like your blue pants. I added another smiley face at the end of the letter, my final emphasis on wanting to be friends. I considered closing with sincerely, but I figured love was a better, friendlier choice. I tucked the picture under my pillow that night, now anxious to see him rather than filled with dread of his reappearance. But like the last time, he did not return the next day, or the day after. The days stretched into weeks, and every morning I found the picture tucked under my pillow from the night before. It wasn't until Thanksgiving break that I saw him again. My eyes opened as the morning sun poked through the blinds of my bedroom. His body didn't look any different in the light. In fact, his black skin seemed darker, absorbing the sun's rays without giving anything back. His eyes seemed wider than before. If he had a mouth, I would have figured he was smiling. In his slender fingers was the picture I drew for him. Hello, Lexi. Thank you for your picture. I do look good in blue pants. I wanted to smile, but, well, sleep paralysis. He flipped the picture over to the side with my letter. I will answer your questions the best I can. I do not have a name, not one you could ever pronounce. But I am happy for you to call me 
Mr. Brown Stick Legs. As for my age, I exist outside of the construct of time. Therefore, I am ageless. I do not go to school, nor do I know what school is. Why do I visit you? I visit to feed on the energy of your soul. My breath quickened as a mute groan exited my teeth. I wanted to run, wanted to get away from him, but I was pinned down, unable to move. He sensed my uneasiness and tried to calm me by patting my forehead. Let me explain. Have you been to the ocean? It appears vast, almost limitless, as you stare out into the blue water, with no visible land on the other side. In my mind, I was standing on a beach. I felt the salty ocean breeze against my face as I looked out over the massive body of water. The waves crashed at my feet. I felt the rush of water over them, followed by the trickle of sand and pebbles as the water drew back. Your soul is like an ocean, vast, limitless, undefinable by words to your understanding. I take only a tiny sip, a single glass of water from a vast ocean. I am not one who could consume an entire ocean. Dark clouds formed over the water as I stared at the white-capped waves. The clouds unleashed a heavy downpour, turning the horizon gray as rain fell from the sky over the ocean. Just as the rain falls over the ocean, your soul can replenish itself by more than I could ever consume. Not even in a thousand of your years. Does that make you feel better? On the beach, in my mind's vision, I nodded. In my bedroom, he nodded back at me. Good. As for your last question, why you cannot move, we are meeting at a point outside of your time, where your world and mine touch. Your physical body cannot move here, but if you persist, you can learn to speak to me with your mind, and I will answer your questions in exchange for your drawings. You can draw pictures of whatever you like. I want to know more of your world. In my mind, I nodded again. This knowledge is a gift, so we can understand one another more. I am not one who would hurt you. He pressed his fingertips to my eyelids again, closing them. In my mind's eye, I was still on the beach, but the sun was setting and no stars were visible through the rain. I drifted back to sleep to the sound of falling rain. The next morning, I asked my parents for a sketchbook and colored pencils. They tried to hold me off until Christmas, but since I spent most of my afternoons and weekends drawing pictures up in my room, Dad let me open one of my gifts a week early, a Strathmore sketchbook with 100 pages with a 50-pack of Crayola colored pencils. I started by drawing the rest of my family, Mom, Dad, my little brother Tommy, our cat Libby, and even though he had died, our dog Pancakes. Next, I drew our house, then our car, then my school. I kept drawing anything I could think of, trees, birds, insects, until my sketchbook was full. I used my allowance to purchase more books so I could keep drawing. I honed my craft, redoing my earlier drawings in greater detail. My thoughts considered his wording, I am not one who could consume an entire ocean. 
I wanted to ask him if there were those that could, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to know such things. Mr. Brownstick Legs didn't return until my freshman year of high school. To him, it wasn't like any time had passed. I read up on lucid dreaming in the time between visits so that when he returned, I would be better capable of talking to him. He held my book in his hands, flipping through my drawings, doting over the increased refinement of my drawing skills. I had filled a dozen sketch pads and upgraded from Crayola to Prismacolor Premier pencils for my drawings. His biggest surprise was when after he complimented my drawings, I spoke to him. Thank you, I said, seeing the words in my mind as I spoke them aloud. If he had a surprised expression, his eyes showed it. You have been very busy, child. Do you have any questions you would like to ask? I hesitated, but finally formed the words in my mind. Are there creatures who can consume an entire ocean? He didn't respond right away, which made me think I had not asked properly. As I asked him a second time, he put a finger to my lips as if to shush me. There are those who can. They are known as the Dark Ones. They are capable of consuming entire souls, emptying them out, leaving them dry and barren. You should not fear them, but you should also not provoke them. His eyes curved downward, as if concerned or afraid. What do they look like? In my mind, my visions were filled with images of great, terrible creatures. Spiders, taller than the Empire State Building, on thin, spindly legs of shadow and smoke. Tentacled monsters in the seas, lofting blue whales like they were toys, ripping them to shreds with their curved, chitinous beaks. Great, ghastly, flying creatures that knocked over orchards and forests with the beat of their leathery wings. I showed you only because you asked, but it is best that we don't talk or think about them. Let them be. I nodded in my mind. He leaned forward and pressed his plate-like face to my head, as if to kiss me on the forehead, which was odd since he didn't have a mouth. Then, as usual, he closed my eyes and I drifted back to sleep. My life took a downturn during the latter years of high school. My dad lost his job and when the search for a new one dragged on, he turned to drinking to cope with his failure. He wasn't abusive, but he wasn't fun to be around either. In the months following, my parents would hush their arguing when I entered the room, greeting me with smiles as if nothing were wrong. That lasted until the day I came home from school to them fighting over a foreclosure notice from the bank. We moved out over a weekend from our home in the suburbs to an apartment on the other side of town. I internalized my feelings during that time. I withdrew from my friends and school activities besides the art club, the only one we could still afford. I saw my friends driving to school and hanging out while I rode the bus, too poor and too far out of the way to join in. My tastes began to change as well. Out of the bubblegum pop of Katy Perry, Kesha, and Taylor Swift, instead I listened to Pierce the Veil, Sleeping with Sirens, and Bring Me the Horizon. My clothes and makeup became darker, more black t-shirts and skirts with black eyeliner and black fingernail polish. Mom called it my goth phase, not that she understood. My drawings became darker too, 
I moved from colored pencils to charcoal, drawing skulls and gothic-looking cemeteries as my passion for drawing animals and flowers waned. I also drew the dark ones in great detail, exactly how I remembered them in my mind's eye. Mr. Brownstick Legs visited me again a month after we moved into the apartment. He looked more at home in my room of blacklight posters and death metal bands than he did in my previous room. His eyes were dim, not the vibrant red as they were before. He stared at me as I lay in bed, unable to move. He moved inches from my face as I heard his words in my mind. Your soul tastes different now. He didn't speak of my drawings. I worried that he might, especially since I had been drawing the dark ones, not only drawing them, but thinking about them and what type of damage they could do if they were to wake. He seemed sad for me, although reading his expression was difficult with no face. He patted my forehead like before, but didn't close my eyes before leaving as he used to. My life continued its spiraling path like a bottle rocket with a broken stick. My parents didn't talk outside of short conversations about which bills to pay and which ones to ignore. Each night, Dad disappeared into a bottle, while Mom disappeared online to chat with a male Facebook friend she knew from high school. The thing about Rock Bottom is that it's often a disguise for a trap door that drops you to an even lower depth than you thought possible. The first bottom came when my father died. Drove off the road into a gravel pit late at night with an empty bottle of bourbon in the passenger seat. I cried, but it felt hollow. I felt hollow. Even when mom tried to hold me, I felt nothing inside. Not sadness, not guilt, not anything. I disappeared into my sketchbook drawing even darker, more disturbing images. Death, dismemberment, vividly accurate vivisections of the cute animals I used to enjoy drawing. My friends no longer talked to me, which was fine because I didn't want to talk to them anymore anyway. I found people to hang out with, not friends, but people who could get me access to moments of chemical-induced euphoria to forget about life for a while. Just like that, the trapdoor opened dropping me to a new rock bottom of addiction. One thing I had that in common with my dad, but instead of falling into a bottle, I fell into a needle. I stole money from my mom's purse to feed my habits, not that she noticed. She was busy with her old Facebook friend who had moved from online acquaintance to nightly sleepover companion. When the time came to begin my senior year, I didn't bother going back. I kept drawing, filling entire sketchbooks with the dark images that reflected my bleak outlook on life. The dark ones were prevalent subjects during this period of my life. I drew them feasting on humanity, raking flesh from bone in their jagged teeth behind lips of smoke. I came home one night to find my mom and her new male friend in the middle of a fight. It was different from our fights with dad, more violent, more physical. When he raised his hand at me for trying to intervene, I decided it was time to bolt. I left home, hitching rides with anyone with a set of wheels I could manage to put up with for short periods of time. My preference leaned toward those with access to the chemical release I craved. The more I could numb, the more I could escape. 
I found certain drug combinations had similar effects to sleep paralysis, where my mind's ability to control my body's actions became severed. In those moments of numbed paralysis, I'd see Mr. Brownstick legs, watching from afar as I dealt the pain. I saw what I perceived as the dark ones, too. But they weren't hiding in the shadows like Mr. Brownstick legs did. They were the shadows. I called out to them as well. For in those moments, I wanted nothing more than to be hollowed out and empty. A void so dark, no pain could ever penetrate it. When they didn't answer, I called out to Mr. Brownstick legs, but he would vanish every time. Perhaps it was all just a drug-fueled hallucination. Overdosing was never my intention. I was pushing too much, trying to find the edge of the void after feeling so low, so very low, searching for that something extra to filter out the background noise. I took it too far, giving myself a near-lethal dose. At one moment, I was lying next to strangers on a stained mattress in an abandoned warehouse. Then came the initial rush of euphoric bliss. And then, nothing. Whoever I was traveling with at the time dumped me on the curb in front of the ER, making me someone else's problem. This was my rock-bottom moment. Although, at the time, it felt more like freefall. I spent three weeks in a coma. I was aware of my surroundings and could hear the doctors and nurses as they checked my vitals and tended to my cleanliness and upkeep, but I couldn't move or speak. At the end of my third week in the ICU on an incubator, I looked up to find Mr. Brownstick legs hovering over me, his round red eyes peering through the darkness. What have you done to yourself, child? His voice spoke inside my mind. In my mind, I was beside him, standing in the middle of a vast salt-flat desert. The ground was cracked and dry in a hexagonal pattern that stretched in all directions. This is your soul now. There is nothing left to drink. I heard the beep of my heart rate monitor back in my hospital room speed up as fear entered my mind. I called out to the Dark Ones. I asked for them to come. They emptied me out. Emptied my soul. No, my child. You did this. You have not replenished. You have only consumed. And now... Nothing remains. I dropped my knees in the middle of the salt as I felt a rumbling deep inside the hollow pit of my stomach. I leaned forward onto my arms, but they were no longer my arms. They were pitch black and empty. I could feel them, but when I looked at them, they were empty voids of smoke and shadow. I stood up on my legs, but they were no longer my legs. The darkness swirled up my torso and down my arms. The emptiness inside me consumed my entire body until only my head remained. What's happening to me? I heard a snap as my arms and legs split, forming eight black spindly legs. I collapsed onto them, unable to support myself. Mr. Brownstick legs glided down in front of my face, his eyes inches from my own. As I told you, child, only the Dark Ones have the ability to consume an entire ocean of a soul. 
That is your fate. That is what you will become. Back in the room, my heart rate monitor crashed into a flat line. I felt the cold darkness swirl up my neck to my head as the void consumed me. I was aware of the nurses and doctors huddled around my body, prepping the crash cart. But all I felt was the cold consuming what was left of me. Help me, I uttered. Please! My physical body jolted from the electric paddles, but I felt nothing. Only the cold darkness. A needle injected into my IV line as they recharged for another burst of electricity. Still, I felt nothing. Only cold. Only darkness. Only the vast emptiness of the void. Mr. Brownstick legs tilted his head as he stared through his unblinking red eyes. He leaned forward, pressing his plate-like face to my forehead. I felt a vibration against my skin, followed by the tingling sensation of heat returning. The darkness receded back down my arms and legs. As he pulled back, the red in his eyes had diminished. A gift for the girl who gave me pants. A tear formed in my eye. It rolled down my cheek and fell onto the parched landscape below. Before I could say anything, an electronic jolt coursed through my body, pulling me away from the salt-flat expanse and back to my hospital room. The sinus rhythm of my heart rate monitor returned to normal. I felt the cool gel of the defibrillator paddles against my chest. I remember squeezing the hand of one of the attending nurses, who smiled down at me. Look who's awake. I cried, but it was different than before. I felt the pain I had long been avoiding, but I felt something else as well. I felt grateful, and I felt a sense of hope I hadn't known in a long time. It was a long road back from the darkness, but the thing about the road to recovery is that, like a road, it leads to a destination. After years of listless drifting toward the void, having a destination was an important first step in finding self-love. I reconnected with my mother, who was struggling with her own form of the darkness. We leaned on one another, talking and going to therapy as we worked through the issues that drove us apart. After my release from the hospital, I moved back home with her, her Facebook friend, long gone. I got my GED and used my many sketchbooks as a portfolio to get an apprenticeship at a tattoo parlor. I've been clean for four years now, and it feels good to smile again. Granted, I still prefer Pierce the Veil to anything from Katy Perry's catalog, and my tattoos and jewelry have more skulls than fluffy bunnies, but that's all on the surface. I no longer crave the darkness to consume me. I often think about the vision with Mr. Brownstick legs on the salt flats that night in the hospital. I had not seen him since that night, and I often wonder about the state of my soul since that day. Has it replenished, or is it still the dried-up, barren wasteland that he took me to on the night? Last night, around three in the morning, I finally got my answer. I woke up with a heaviness on my chest, arms, and legs. At first, I felt the grips of fear grabbing hold, much like the first time I experienced it. But then, 
In the dark corner of my room, I saw glowing red eyes staring back at me from the shadows. In spite of my sleep paralysis, I couldn't help but smile when I heard his voice call out to me. Child, your soul tastes much better now. I hope you've enjoyed our annual Halloween special. And don't worry, we'll be back to our regular Disturbed episodes you're used to next week. The music you heard in this episode was a completely custom score by the talented Kevin Hartnell. Go check out more of his work at kevinhartnell.bandcamp.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can get early access to our premium feed featuring ad-free listening and bonus episodes. Visit disturbedpodcast.com support to learn more. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Thursday with a brand new regular episode. Happy Halloween, you disturbing people. And don't forget to stay safe out there, y'all.